<laughs> He's getting mic'd up. Um, it is my very great pleasure uh, now to introduce our next speaker, Ben Waver, uh, who is the president and CEO of Humanize, um, a behavioral analytics company. Uh, now, I didn't know what a behavioral analytics company was, so I looked it up and I had the uh, opportunity to talk to Ben a little bit before um, uh, hand this morning. And as best as I understand it, um, Ben's company and Ben use analytics to humanize the workplace, um, to make, to look at issues like workplace, workspace, uh, people, teaming and engagement, space planning, process improvement, um, and all those things that kind of shape our environment on a day-to-day -day basis. And maybe human, maybe humanizing, and maybe dehumanizing. Um, ben is a, also a visiting scientist at the MIT Media Lab, where he earned his PhD in the Human Dynamics Group. He earned his BA and MA in Computer Science from Boston University down the road. Um, ben also was previously a senior researcher at the Harvard Business School in the Organizational Behavioral Group. Um, his work centers around using real-time data flows to rethink management of people, physical architecture, corporate planning, training, and more. He is going to talk to us today about using people analytics to detect and reduce discrimination in the workplace. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome. Great, thanks everybody. So, um, yeah, sorry that I wasn't here. The, I would have liked to join you guys for dinner last night, but I was. I had the fortune of being at O'Hare Airport for six hours. Uh, oh, right. So, yeah. hopefully, you guys don't have the experience as you go back. But. Um, and thanks, thanks for that introduction. To, um, to, to give you a high level uh, talk about you know, what I've done over the last, uh, I guess, uh, 12 years of my research going back to my PhD, as well as what we've done um, in my company, you, you know, really there's this idea when it comes to pretty much, I can basically ask any question of any major organization in the world about what goes on internally that, that people can't answer. Right? So you could say, you know, how much does the executive team uh, talk to the engineering team? Like, nobody does that. Okay. How much should a salesperson talk to a customer? You think about how fundamental, how critical those questions are. And the reason that we can't answer them is we just don't have any data. Right? Typically, we can use things like surveys or consultants to measure these things. Not to say that data is useless, but you know, if it's a cloudy day out like it is today, you'll answer differently if it's sunny. If I ask you, you talked to you yesterday, you're only 30% accurate. Right? Humans are not reporting devices. And of course, if I have an organization of thousands or tens of thousands of people, I can't pay enough consultants to follow people around all the time. But the idea is that there's actually now an awful lot of data about what people do at work. There's email, meeting data, chat data, and now increasingly sensor data that gives you literally millisecond information on what's going on within the company. And what that enables us to do is start to answer a lot of these questions that, that I alluded to, some fundamental questions. But also, as we get more and more data from more and more companies, we can start to look at problems that don't just confront one organization, but that confront many. And so discrimination is one of those things, right? Where we have these, these basic questions around what leads, so we know, Right? We know there are differences in outcomes between, uh, for example, men and women at work, right? We know men get promoted more, we know they get paid more. And so what can underlie that? And, and the idea that this data can be used to answer some of these questions. Right? And I, I will show this picture again, so you don't have to. You could take the picture now if you want, but it, it will come back. Um, so 
and it does get Before we get into how we use data to, to, to investigate this, what I want to talk about a little bit for a second is the fact that really, globally, there is only one industry that is completely data-driven about their people. And those are baseball teams, right? <laughs> you know, for, for 150 years, if you had a baseball team, right, you had a bunch of old guys who knew a lot about baseball, watched people play baseball, and then based on their subjective evaluations, they build a team, right? And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. It was just used as the best way to do things. For those people who aren't from the US, if you don't know baseball, basically it's a lot like cricket, uh, and it's really good to watch when you're drunk, basically. Um, very exciting in that way. Um, but, but again, then one day you get this guy, uh, Billy Bean or, or Brad Pitt, um, if you like, who said, no, we're going to use behavioral data to build an organization. And again, for, for the sport of baseball, right, if you're not familiar with it, this is about how, uh, how successful you are at, at, at hitting the ball in place, how successful you are in fielding. But fundamentally, it's data about behavior. And everyone thought he was crazy. But if you saw the movie Moneyball, if you read the book, you know what happened. They went on record winning streak, they made the playoffs, and now every team builds an organization this way. And when you take this perspective, we can start to understand why a lot of the decisions that companies make in general um, tend to be really ineffective. Right? So the question I put up here might seem a little weird. Like, why is organizational change hard? You know, but, but you think about it. Take, take mergers and acquisitions, for example. I, mean, I don't know if anyone's here been through a merger or an acquisition, right? Yeah, so was it, was it a fun process? No. Yeah, that's probably the best. So, so conservatively, you know, uh, M&A fails about 60% of the time. And last year, globally, it wasted about $2.3 trillion um, in market, just gone, right? And you've got smart people who year after year are looking at these things, right? And we're consistently failing. And so one approach is to, to say, you know, we're okay with throwing trillions of dollars in the wood chip every year. Or you could say maybe we're looking at the wrong metrics. Because the stuff that we tend to look at is that stuff on the left, right? Processes, org charts, financials. Because those are easy for me to understand. I can point at the person at the top and I can say that's the most important person in the company. And on the other hand, if I ask you, who's the social center of your organization? How much uh, do managers in both companies uh, talk to women on their team? Critical questions that people can't answer. But now, because we have data on what goes on, because we don't just have digital data now, we also have next generation ID badges that can actually measure who talks to who, how people talk to each other, and we'll get into that data in a second. But then you can really start to quantitatively, not just answer these questions, but then also say that as you roll out a new program, did it have an effect? And that's what's critical. It's not just knowing the state of the world, but because you have this data coming in, we don't have to wait years to figure out that some program worked or didn't work. We can actually say, yes, this changed behavior, and now we can roll it out to everybody. So all this gives rise to the area of people analytics, which, you know, conversely, you know, I did write the book on it, it makes a great gift. Um, <laughs> but fundamentally, that's about using behavioral data to build an organization, right? To, to, to make management decisions. And there's now over 60 organizations in the US that have um, people analytics divisions. And fundamentally, what they're doing is using the kind of data that I just you know, mentioned to A-B test how they manage their business. Now, I don't know if how many people here are familiar with A-B testing. We've all, if you've bought anything on Amazon, you've been part of an A-B test, right? Um, and so the way A-B testing works is like Amazon doesn't have just one version of their homepage. They have hundreds of versions. And what they do is they roll that out to tens of thousands of their users. 
and they see how does that change user behavior, in this case what you buy. They take the version that works best and they roll that out to everybody. Now imagine you could do this with the way that you manage a business. You could say, you know, I actually don't know what org chart is going to be most effective. Like, I'm going to try five different models at different parts of the organization and see how does it change how people work. I don't know how to pay people. I don't know what you know DNI program works. Let me actually see quantitatively how do these things change behavior. And then you don't have to get the right answer first because we rarely do, but you're able to very rapidly test the impact of these things. And, and so just to go into the data that we're collecting before we get into to answering some of the, the, you know, the questions around discrimination, let's just go through regular day at work. Right? So typically, maybe you get into the office and then you'll, you know, you'll have a meeting, then maybe you'll bang a few emails, and then maybe you have coffee with a coworker. But what you're doing is you're not just having those conversations. What you're doing is you're generating data. And so, you know, for example, um, right now I'm generating information on how much I speak. So right, and I'm giving a presentation, so I'm thinking 99% of the time. But now imagine in a meeting, I want to know how dominant people are in that conversation. You can do that. Again, using a microphone and not recording what people say, but in real time I can first figure out if you're talking or not. And then, of course, there's been decades of research showing how does that affect outcomes of, for example, salary negotiations, um, but also things like the outcome of brainstorming meetings. And then if people don't participate equally, you tend to come up with much poorer ideas. But they're not just looking at how much you talk, but you can even look at the dynamics of conversations, so who talks after who. The idea that if you talk and then I talk, you talk and then I talk, you talk and then I talk, everything flows through me, so my opinion is going to color whatever comes out. You can also look at things like interactivity. Right? So not just how long do I talk in the conversation, but for each turn I take. Do I go on for 10 minutes or do I go on for 10 seconds? Right? And again, if we're going back and forth very, very quickly, that's a very different conversation than me going on for 10 minutes. But even when you're by yourself, you're generating a lot of interesting data. You know, so for example, when you're at your desk, um, or even when you're listening, uh, or you're in a conversation, uh, your posture is actually um, extremely important data. And this is not just from a, from a health perspective. Um, it turns out that as you get more engaged in a conversation, you start to lean in a little bit, and you start to, to mimic what the person does. And when I say that, a few people start to lean in, so it's good. We got, we got some people that are, this is good. But, but again, essentially what that gives you is in real time, you look at that mimicry, you can really see how engaged people are in a conversation. You can look at, of course, things like activity levels, you know, Fitbit type data. Again, this is just using a motion sensor. So, you know, if you have a Fitbit, same thing, your phone does this. All right, so this is data that, that already exists. And importantly, and more importantly than this, is probably all the digital data that we generate. You know, email, media data, chat data. And essentially what that data acts as is a digital x-ray of the organization. Where, you know, think about what email data gives you, for example. It essentially tells you who communicates with whom, when, how often. And so mapping that, you see a network of the whole company. Right? And all of a sudden, you can start to see how quickly do people respond to each other, how much do different people or different teams communicate. And that helps you make a lot of very big management decisions on using that information. Again, not looking at content, looking at the patterns of these things. Even looking at your tone of voice, is extremely important. So it turns out that looking from changes to your tone of voice, um, we can figure out how stressed you are really accurately at about 60% of the variance. Um, and the way we did this, so the gold standard of stress measurement is cortisol. Right? And typically you get that from, from saliva. Right? So there have been some laboratory work showing that if 
people's voice changed, that that implied that they were under some degree of stress. So we also tested this in the lab, and we had a couple hundred people wear, wear these badges um, to collect this sort of data. Um, and then we had them spit into tubes every 15 minutes, and we tried to see could we predict change in the cortisol level from changes uh, in the way they talked, and we could really accurately. But that wasn't good enough for us. We wanted to see you know, in real workplaces are the same metrics predictive. So we had a couple of hundred of our users opt into some uh, additional data collection, and we sent them uh, boxes right, that were full of vials. And we said that every 15 minutes here at work, we're going to need you to spit into a tube. So, so this is literally getting your hands dirty with, uh, with data collection. Um, what we were able to do, though, is we were able to show that, yeah, even in the real world, we could have this kind of predictive power, which means that every 15 minutes at a company, I can show you how stressed different teams are. And with all of this, and we'll get into it more, but you know, we don't share individual data with companies. We deploy on an opt-in basis. Um, we don't record what people say. We don't count how many times people go to the bathroom. <laughs> we give people consent forms. And all this is important for actually rolling it out in a real company. But so leave that to the uh, side for a second. You know, there's other things you look at, speaking speed, volume modulation, right, that, that are very indicative of the type of conversation you're having. All right. So now we've got all this data. I also have data on who talks to who. Um, and again, you can think of these sort of next generation ID badges. That's actually the previous version. The new one we have, it gets to about the size of an RFID card. You know, the things you use to tap into doors, right? So this is something, I mean, the original version we built at MIT over 10 years ago was like the size of a tie. Um, yeah, and, and I wrote the operating system that ran on that, and like, you should never do that. Um, that's not fun. But you know, we got it to work, and we were able to, um, to measure these sort of things, and it gets smaller, cheaper, faster. You know, and, and all, those, all those metrics that showed you this can matter. In three or four years, the vast majority of company ID badges, whether it's these or, or, some, or other ones, are going to have these sensors in it. So the question is, what do you do with this data, and how do you ethically deal with it, all these things? Uh, and the, the point is, you know, for right now, we have this tool. And so combined with the digital data, we have this complete view of really what's going on at work. So what that enables us to do is start to investigate um, way, really how people behave within companies. And before, again, I get to the discrimination example, I'll talk about one case study of how we can this in a real company. So when you think about this data for a second, you know, a lot of this is about collaboration patterns, it's a lot of who talks to who, these sort of things. And so you might think that you know, in an organization or a type of work that is extremely individual, um, this data wouldn't be as useful, or that's already really measured. And so, so maybe that would be an environment like a call center. So has anyone here worked in a call center, been to a call center before? There you go. Is it a fun place to, to work? Yeah. Oh, I didn't work in You didn't work in one. Okay. So the, the, thing, the thing about a call center, right, your job, so people call you to yell at you about stuff that's not your fault. That is your job. Right? And it's interesting that call centers have been managed one way for like 60 years. And the idea is that I want to maximize the amount of time you're on the phone, maximize out time. Um, and you know the reason is that if you go back to you know the 1960s, you might have only had 100 people in a call center, which meant that I couldn't do things like have 20 people take a break at the same time because I couldn't handle all the load that would come in. Of course, modern call centers, every single one is thousands of people. You don't necessarily need to do things that way, but they've been so optimized to work in this way that it works pretty well. So let's keep doing it. Then a Fortune 500 financial company came to us and they said, well, we got this interesting problem where we have call centers um, all across the country, all over the world, that are managed in exactly the same way, 
but they have very different performance. And so they thought this has something to do with the culture of these call centers. But you know, what, is, what does that mean? We want to measure it. So what we do is we go in there, we, we have all their digital data. We also have performance data, which is really easy to measure in an organization like this. It's essentially how long does it take you to complete calls? Then we also have who talks to who, how do people talk to customers on the phone? And initially, I thought that was going to be the most important thing, that if you talk to the customer in a certain way, you complete the call more quickly. What was fascinating was it turned out that by far, the most important behavior was how you talk to your coworkers. That if you had a very cohesive group, so the people you talk to talk a lot to each other, the people with the most cohesive groups completed calls in half the time is people with the least cohesive groups. It's a massive effect. And and, and so we could talk. So, so the question here was, well, when do people actually talk to each other? They don't have breaks at the same time. There's not a lot of opportunities. But it turned out that a couple times a week, your lunch break would overlap with some of your coworkers for about 15 minutes. And that's where over 80% of this interaction happened. So the bank goes in and says, all right, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to A-B test a new break structure. For half our teams, we're going to give everyone in the team a break at the same time. That's it. Now, importantly, so these teams, they have about 20 people. Um, this costs them nothing. This is free, right? They have over 10,000 call center employees. It's very easy for them to shift the load to other teams. The reason they never did it before is they just didn't have any data to show that the way it's currently working might not be that effective. But so you test this out. And so they let this go for three months without really looking at the results. They want this to be normal practice. And here's what they found. So cohesion, this is measured with, uh, with the badges, how tightly knit your groups are. That went up by about 18%. And you'd expect that, because now if I have a break at the same time as you, we're able to talk more to each other, all that, those things. The stress went down very significantly as well, by about 19%. And I think you could expect that as well, because imagine you get a tough call with a customer. Previously, I would have had to wait you know, eight hours till the end of the day to vent to one of my coworkers, at which point I just want to go home. But of course, if I have a break at the same time as one of my teammates, I can say, man, I just had this really tough call. And then they can support you. It's very interesting about that last number, performance. That's a hard metric, right? So with stress, we measured that with the badges. We also got surveys to validate it. Performance, this is how quickly people completed calls. So people completed calls 23% more quickly. Important every single one of these metrics. There was a no change when you didn't change when people took breaks which again, was only 15 minutes of their day. This was not a massive management change. Now there's theoretical reasons why you might expect this, right? You could say, well, again, if, I, um, if I'm in a very tight-knit group, then even though I'm competing with you in terms of performance metrics, I'll probably share best practices with you because you're gonna share with me in the future. And if you don't, we'll just cut you out. But the, I think what's fascinating about this, I mean, for this company, they save tens of millions of dollars a year on performance, you know, the, the turnover also point out that two years on has gone down um, to about 12% a year from over 40%. Right? So I mean a massive reduction in turnover as well. And I think when we, you know, if you go to an organization and you say we're going to improve performance by over 20%, you know, the normal reaction is to say we completely change how we manage the business. And what these sort of results show is that if you can find these social levers that people respond to and you can act on them the right way, you get really big results. So at this point, we have the largest data set on face-to-face interaction at work in the world. And now this enables us, you know, from companies like that and others, to look at some broader questions uh, that impact everybody. And gender at work is one of these examples, discrimination in particular. Right? 
See, I promise this would come back up. Um, so one thing that I like to mention is I, I hate using anecdotes to make policy decisions. I hate it. Um, and there's a lot of anecdotes around the, uh, the issue of uh, you know, gender-based discrimination at work. Right? Where, I'm going to oversimplify here, but you have people like Sheryl Sandberg who say if women just work differently, we'll expect different results. Or you get people like Anne-Marie Slaughter who say, no, the deck is just stacked against women. And, and I have this fundamental question, because the end with, with every individual experience is one. And we now have enough data to start to look at some broad trends. So the first question that, that I had, at least, was do men and women work differently? And what I mean by that, because there are things that we know. We know that like men and women, for example, negotiate differently. But, but what I want to talk about is for the vast, vast, vast majority of your behavior at work, how you collaborate with your, your coworkers, you know, how, how you spend your time, are those behaviors different between men and women? So concretely, we're looking at the types of networks that we have. We're looking at how we talk, so how dominant we are in general. Um, we're looking at um, where people spend time, how much focus work they do. All right, so, so I'm going to ask the question. So if everyone in the room, so who thinks that men and women um, work differently? Have different, significantly different behaviors. Okay. So who thinks they're the same? You're right. You got it. So so here's so here's the interesting thing here. So again, what we're looking for here, importantly, is we know there are differences in outcomes. So how can we explain that? And so the first way you could try to explain that is differences in behaviors. Now the issue is that variance in behavior is really high. So some men talk a lot, some women talk a lot. Some men have broad networks, some women have broad networks. So, okay. So in general, we can't tell the difference behaviorally. You know, there's things like tone of voice that sure we can tell the difference, but in general, we can't tell the difference uh, from behavioral perspective what, on men and women. But so let's go to the next, the next question, which is it turns out that with our data, we can predict promotions, not with 100% not with accuracy, but pretty well. And so this is a question of, just the way we combine behaviors that predict promotions, are there differences between men and women in, in the way those behaviors are combined? Okay. So who thinks there's a difference there? Okay. Good, not as many people. There's still not a difference. Okay, okay, so, but we know, we know there's differences in outcomes. So what could be an explanation for this? Well, there is one thing that women can do that men physically can't do, and that's, that's have kids, right? Um, my, my wife and I are actually having our third in a little bit. This is not her. She would not let me put her picture up. Um, so let's, for, for, the, for the moment, let's lead to, to the side, the egalitarian issue of the fact that women take off more time than men when they have a kid. In my company, we give men and women both. We actually force uh, men to take the three months off of full pay. Um, it's just, we think it's the right thing to do. But that's not, that's not the case in the vast, vast, vast majority of companies. So we leave that to the side. Unfortunately, I only have enough data where I actually have data on that a person went on maternity leave um, for dozens of people, so I don't have enough to say something significant. Um, but I don't know, are you familiar with the resume study at Stanford? Okay, so one researcher at Stanford who got at this, that did a brilliant study, well, what they did is they created a fake resume, so it's just one resume, um, and they sent it to tens of thousands of job openings. And what they did is they varied in the name, whether it was man or woman, and then in the cover letter, whether they had kids or didn't have kids. And 
and they sent it out, and the question was, you know, who got a call back? And they did a laboratory study to follow this up to try to get it qualitatively why people made certain decisions. What was fascinating is the most desirable candidates, ones who got the most callbacks, were men with kids. And when you ask people why, why, you know, why do you like them? They're like, well, they're responsible. They're going to work really hard to provide for their family. Yeah, the next most desirable candidates were single men and single women. They were statistically identical. Then by far, the least desirable candidates were women with kids. You know, when you ask people why, they say, well, they're going to be thinking about their kids all the time. And so this is the issue. So the issue is that we've knocked out all of the behavioral explanations of why we see differences in outcomes between men and women, which means that the differences we see in outcomes are due to bias. And that sucks. Because changing that is a multi-generational effort. And I know, especially in the U.S., we like to say, well, I'm going to implement a, I'm going to implement a program internally, and that means in five years or ten years, we're going to have equal representation or equal pay across companies. Not saying you shouldn't do those things, but that we have to go into them realizing that problems like Google, they're not going to have much of an effect, especially if we don't measure the behavioral outcomes. And the idea that not just making an investment in how we do things um, to have an impact in our company next year, but at a generational level. That's something that, again, we typically don't think about. But we need to start doing those things if we want to have an effect. And you know, one of the examples that I always think about is, um, it, I, don't, I think it wasn't until last year, like last March, that Apple, for the first time, had one of their female executives announce a product release, which is crazy. Like, they've had female executives for a long time, and they just haven't had someone out there. You know, or you know, what I also think about is, I mean, my my oldest son, he's uh, he's only turning seven on Sunday, and you know, you look at TV shows he watches, and most of the main characters are boys, there's more boys and girls, and, and so you think about, you see that for 22 years of your life every day, and then you're supposed to get into the workplace and just flip the switch and change that, and that's not going to happen, right? And which means we need to change all of those things, but that even if we snap our fingers and change them today, we also have to realize that that is going to take a long time to progress. And that, and so actually we're writing a paper in HBR where we get into some more details about possible effects of these interventions. But when you make these interventions, you know, the key is, of course, first to see behaviorally, how does this change how we work, how we spend our time, does it? And then before, we have to wait years for these lagging indicators to show up. But then it's also incumbent um, you know, upon academics, upon researchers, upon governments to, be, to track these things as well. Because these are things, in terms of changing behavior, in terms of making it so that we're starting to see the kinds of impacts that we need to really impact bias long term. Um, that's really the only way that we're eventually going to get um, to equality. Right? And it's just going to be a long road. Now, I'll get into one other thing before I, I, I wrap up, which is there's another topic sort of related to this, which, which we've all, all often talked about as um, <coughs> possibly being an effective tool to promote the quality of uh, flexible working and remote working. Right? And you know, some of you, some of us might still be familiar with, uh, with Yahoo. Um, but people here might remember um, about three years ago, um, Marissa Meyer, who's the CEO of Yahoo, um, said, we're going to have everybody work in the office every day. Is, do you remember this? Yeah, right. And you might also remember, like, she got a ton of heat for that. Right? People said, well, this isn't very flexible workers, not very women. And, and again, the reason she made that decision was because that's how they did it at Google. Okay, so again, end of one, and I don't like those decisions. So, so here's the question: So, Yahoo at the time was a, 
you know, it was primarily a technology company. And I don't know, are there any people in here programmers or have been a programmer in the past? Right? So is a programming job like is a programming job, is that a very individual job? Right. No, it's Again, the traditional, the stereotypical view of a programmer is someone who sits in the corner drinking Mountain Dew and no one talks to them, right? Again, I am a poor programmer. I do like Mountain Dew, so it is a stereotype for a reason. Um, but, but again, it's an extremely collaborative job, right? Your code depends on the code of hundreds of thousands of other people. And if you don't talk to them, that's where bugs pop up. Great research at IBM, MIT, Carnegie Mellon showing that if I'm programmer one, you're programmer two. If my code X depends on your code Y, and we don't talk to each other. It takes 32% longer to complete code. It made a massive impact. So actually, pulling data from, we have a module around this, but from one of our Fortune 500 customers, I have data from over four, over four years of their data across their entire workforce. There's hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, and of them, uh, tens of thousands are developers. And so I actually have all of their communication data, so who talks to who. And I also have all of their dependency data, so whose code depends on whose code. And so we had this basic question again: If we work in the same office, how much, how many gaps do we have? Versus if I work from home, how many gaps do I have? Okay. And I'll make the I'll, I'll preface this by saying that this company did, does a ton of remote work, and actually there were more dependencies between people who work remotely than people who are in the same office. Okay, so this. And the result we see is not, and I'm going to throw out, so I'm not even showing you face-to-face -face communication data. All of this is just digital, email, chat, that sort of stuff. So there's technologically, there's no reason that I can't communicate with you, um, no matter where you are. And, and last thing I'll show, I'll show you the results. But um, before I spill the beans, we're going to use the most conservative uh, definition of communication possible. We're going to say if there's at least one communication between two people, then we'll say the dependencies fulfilled. So, Lowest bar possible. And even with that low bar, we saw that essentially, if you were in the same office, assigned to the same office, just assigned to the same office, 55% of the time you'd communicate about a dependency. So about 45% of the time you would. Those numbers were essentially flipped if you were remote. It was actually about 46% of the time you would communicate um, if you were uh, not in the same office. If you were remote, I think 4% of the time you would. That difference, you know, 8, 9% difference. Uh, for a company like Yahoo, even Yahoo at the time, I should say, um, was worth about $150 million a year in terms of reduced performance, which is massive. And we're not taking into account quality um, or anything like that. It, it actually turns out that on average, people who are remote would communicate on average about eight times about a single dependency, digitally again. And people who are co-located would digitally communicate over 38 times about a dependency. The idea that I bump into you in the hallway, I'm like, oh, I forgot, I'm supposed to get back to you about that. Those are the sorts of things where digital tools just don't recreate that. Which means that if we start to offer, and, and what this, what I would off, argue this offers, first of all, it means you, sh you should make these kind of decisions if you're not looking at the data and just based on like you think it's the right thing to do. But the second thing is that, especially if we offer tools like remote working only to women, right? Well, guess what's going to happen? This is, it's not just, um, it, it, again, you, you need to talk about, well, how do we get benefits to retain people? That's important. But if you're doing that, at the expense of not just their performance, but the performance of the entire organization, or it's something where you're disadvantaging them in relation to their to their male peers, that's a big problem. Right? And, and so again, making sure, and maybe you still make that decision, but whenever we make these decisions, you, you need to know what's on the table. Right? And typically, we only consider things that are really easy to measure, like cost. Right? Um, 
But now these things are becoming easier to measure. So you can't say, oh, well, it's, it's really hard for us to look at the impact. You can do that now. Right? Everybody has the data that we used here, everybody. Okay. So, so just to wrap up, talk a little bit about the, uh, the future of work. So when a lot of us think about the future, we think about things like Star Wars, Star Trek, at least I do. Um, but, but actually, I think probably Harry Potter is a better example. People, people seen the Harry Potter movies, read the book. Yes. Good. Okay. Good. So, sometimes people say no, and then I have to like explain Harry Potter, yeah. which yeah, it's fun. Anyway, it, you want to remember? You remember in the, in the movies or in the books, they have these staircases in Hogwarts that move on their own. I, I always really liked that. Like so, the idea that the environment is reacting to the people within it, and and so you, know, you can imagine. You, know, you come into work in the future, go to the elevator, you just get in, you don't press any buttons. But the idea that there is an algorithm that says, well, actually, it looks like I need these two teams to talk more to each other. So I'm just going to let you off a certain floor. Now, now, maybe you have a meeting and you press a button, I need to go to the sixth floor, you do that, right? But then assuming you don't really care, um, I remember I was talking to um, one from EY earlier where I know like they have flexible seating, which means you can sit technically wherever you want. And so basically, you know, a simpler version of this is instead of that, here's what we think you should sit. And people are going to go with that default, you know, 90% of the time. Right? But so the idea that you can do that, and you do that because you're probably going to have a really interesting discussion. Right? And, and an algorithm, again, no matter how intelligent it does, it doesn't know that you need to talk to this person. It does know that. But it can create the conditions where the right stuff is going to happen more. Right? Or, you know, you can imagine like the coffee machine is a robot, where you know, if I need two teams to talk to each other, if you put a coffee machine in between them, you know, guess what? They talk a lot more to each other. Um, and it's really funny. People talk about, ah, it's a, sort of a, a joke application, actually, to tell you. The location of the coffee machine has about as much impact on communication patterns as the orbit terminal. All right? Um, and it's funny, because one of our Japanese customers took this example literally. Now, they didn't build robot coffee machines, unfortunately, because that would be amazing. Um, but what they did is every morning, they had their employees move their coffee machines around depending on, so they had these things on wheels, right, and they moved them around, depending on whether they wanted certain teams to internally focus versus focus more on other teams based on the previous day's data, right? Again, simple thing, but actually that is, that is a really big effect. I mean, these different groups in, um, in the Netherlands that are making these robotic walls that move on their own to optimize people flow, that's interesting. But, but again, with, with all this, a lot of what I've been talking about is how to, you know, basically find patterns or best practices across very large groups of people, um, particularly in single organizations, you know, big companies like, you know, like GM or, uh, or ExxonMobil, and then roll that to other teams. And, and that's, you know, for us as, as a company, that's what we're going to be focused on over the next couple of years. But, but if that's all we do, frankly, then we will fail because the vast majority of people don't, don't work in these big companies, right? They work in, in, in small, medium-sized businesses. Right? And they fail a lot, right? I mean, in the U.S., Small businesses fail, I think it's like 70% within three years. And it's not because people have bad ideas, it's because you've never run a business before. But so imagine, maybe you're a great chef, imagine you open a restaurant. And if I could show you, but you know, do you know how to train your wait staff? Like, I don't really know. But if I could say, here's what the best restaurant does. Here's how the wait staff interacts with customers. Here's how much time they spend with uh, blind cooks. If you can increase, or decrease, I should say, that failure rate by, you know, five, 10%, I mean, that is a global economic change. But at the same time, I don't just have to connect, for example, restaurants to each other. It could turn out that there's a grocery store in Africa doing something organizationally really interesting. Now, previously, it would take you know, over a decade for some organizational researcher to discover that, write up a case, send that out, at which point it's become, it's become old news. But 
if you have this kind of data literally coming in day by day, week by week, month by month, you can start to have restaurants in the US learning from grocery stores in Africa, big companies in Russia learning from big companies in Brazil. Right? And this, this idea that just we're really able to rapidly learn like, actually how to manage ourselves and we can start to, to really improve at the scale that we need to to, uh, to really keep growing into the future. Um, so listen, it's been, been great talking to everybody. I think we still have some time for questions. Um, all right, perfect. So um, thanks very much. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I, I just yeah. really wanted to ask you to sure. clarify the yeah. slide about interaction. Yeah. Uh, because it, it sort of went by so fast. Uh, yeah. Did, uh, let me just see yeah. if I understood first. Sure. Compare the, you're comparing people who worked in situ in work yeah. with people who work from home. Um, and and the, the unit of measurement was the amount of interaction. So the unit of measurement, so there's a graph where it's over the percent, basically. What I was looking at is um, for every dependency that you have, of which yes. there are millions, was there at least one communication about that dependency? Yes. And there wasn't yet. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. what you found yeah. was that uh, people at home, yeah. on average, would yeah. communicate eight times per hour, uh, is it? Sorry, so it's a little different. So there's two, there are two things here. So let's say I work from home and I have a dependency with you. About 45% of the time, I'll communicate with you over the course of years. So this is years. I'll communicate with you at least once, 45% of the time. But that's it. So it's actually very little. There's a lot of dependencies I have that I don't communicate about. On average, though, if I communicate with you about a dependency, I'll, I will communicate with you about it at times. Does that make sense? Uh, no. Okay. Sorry, maybe right. I'm, I'm being very dense. No, 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 it's okay. So, at the high level, the number is saying, what percent of the time, if, I, if people have dependencies with each other, what percent of the time do they communicate about that dependency? Does that make sense? That part makes sense? Yes. The, okay. Where do I get the figure yeah. then? That it, the people at home were eight per some of her yeah. day, I thought, no. uh, or, or per so hour. It's, it's it? not, so this is over the lifetime of the entire project. They would communicate oh. eight times about a single dependency. Yes, yeah. compared to 38. 30, 30, correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay, now here's my question. Sure. Um, uh, how did you establish yes. if they were actually communicating about yeah. the dependency so, so and not gossiping that's right. and saying they were? Yeah. So, Fortunately, in this data, in the data that I'm showing you here, um, this was data from within the software development environment. So there's a chat program within their development environment. So there's a programming, there's a chat thing right there, which you use to tag to a specific piece of code. So, which means that this, the, the chat that you have is literally embedded in a comments in the code, which it's not to say that there's no gossip there, but there's, there's very, very, very little. Um, this is not general email communication. There's, there's other sources that you can go to um, where you get similar results, but it's more difficult to tie to a specific piece of work. Um, right. So in this data, we, it's just, that data enables us to investigate this a lot more. Exactly. Okay, so th Perfect. thank you very much. Sure. Yeah, go right there. Thank you for sharing yeah, sure. uh, with us, uh, in particular, the disadvantages that yeah. women currently face yeah. in the workplace. 
Can you lay on top of that ethnicity and race? Yeah. So that's actually one of the things that we're doing right now. Um, when when we first started doing this, I, I honestly didn't really think to collect that kind of demographic data, and it was honestly it was you know four or five years ago um, that I just I read an article about you know outcomes for women in the workplace about someone just talking about their personal experience, and then that was like all right, we probably should be able to answer this question, and in a similar way. Um, over the last couple of years, I've gotten interested about race, and so as now we've been able, over the last six months, we've been able to get that data from a significant number of our customers. Um, and so actually, we have a product now that can do explicitly that. Um, again, it, it works with any demographic grouping that you choose. Um, what I'm trying to do now is we're st we almost on race have enough data from enough companies where I feel confident saying something very general. Like I feel very confident on gender at this point. Like we've seen this, I've seen this across enough enough companies with a very general trend. This is again, those are US-based companies that I showed you the data from. We now have data from other countries as well, we're layering it on top, but it looks fairly similar, frankly. Um, or in places like Japan, frankly, like a lot worse. Um, but again, race is the next race is the next one we're gonna tackle. Um, also generational differences, just because frankly I get ticked about people saying like millennials are different, blah blah blah, which Early results show that's not accurate. Um, anyway, but that's, we're most likely late summer, early fall next year, we're going to put out a piece called NHBR, um, at least showing some of the initial results on that. Um, some of the initial things we're seeing are probably what you'd expect. They look, um, with the exception of now we have enough data where we can start to do things like control for role and basically show some of the behavioral fingerprints of this bias. Um, so without getting too much into the weeds, in the data that I'm showing you, this is very aggregate level behavior. Right? So I'm looking at behavior over months or years of people, right? Um, and also, because of the nature of the data, it was a little bit harder for us to control for role. Um, we have orders of magnitude more data than when we even ran that analysis six months ago. Um, so, I mean, at this point, I have data from, I think, 1% of the workers in Fortune 500 companies, which is actually a lot of people. Um, and so, we're starting to see things where you know, for example, like how are women cut out of specific conversations, right? And we start to see that. And so we can get a lot more targeted. And we're seeing similar things when we look at race, um, at least in the US. Um, yeah. And we have time for one last question. One last question. Uh, sorry, one quarter of whistle. Hi, Deirdre Wager. Um, I spent many, yeah. all the 90s at Starbucks, and so I was yeah. very interested to see yeah. the impact of cohesion yeah. and people taking their breaks together yeah. and the coffee machine moving around Japan's offices. Do you have any data on how frequently that needs to happen? I mean, is it a daily, is it a time constraint? Do you have so, any data on that? Yeah. Um, It depends on how fast your work changes. Okay. So if your work changes daily, depending because you're an incredibly fast-paced business, you know, maybe you're doing sales and, and every every day like you're working on a different deal, um, maybe daily makes sense. Okay. If you're working on you know projects that have a life cycle of a couple months, then a couple months probably makes more sense. But I would argue that depending on the behavioral patterns that you see, you might want to change it more frequently. So for example, one of our customers they saw they need for a critical part of the process they need two divi two divisions that barely talk to each other. Right? 
already. And they saw that like, like over the last three weeks, they haven't talked. Which means that the next day they wanted to intervene, right? Now, the challenge with all this, it's not a technology problem. Like, I can give you feedback every single day on these things. The challenge is a cultural one, right? In that you know where the coffee machine is, right? And so if I change that every day, I have to culturally be able to change that, right? If you aren't, if you're going to get ticked off because I changed where the coffee machine is, then that's not good, and that's going to defeat the purpose of it. And so with all of this, I mean, there's things technologically we can do today. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, so ExxonMobil is uh, their longest running customer. Um, they've been using this continuously for over three years. We have 10% um, of the workforce uh, on a platform, right? They, when they first started using our technology, they were running one test. And just testing one thing. Basically, they were moving people around in offices. They wanted to see the impact on, on behavior. Three years down the line, they're running seven tests concurrently. So it's not a lot more. From a numbers perspective, they could run actually over 100 tests today. And we can, our platform, we've been supporting, right? But the issue is, you know, for me to prepare my employees, for me to, you know, on a weekly basis, change where you sit, change where the coffee machine is, change how I pay you, change, you know, that's a lot to ask. And so we need to build up to that. But, and the thing is, is that, you know, eventually this becomes table stakes. This kind of technology, whether it's ours or somebody else's, this becomes table stakes. Because we have hard KPIs that we're able to show in companies that adopt our technologies, you get 10, I think it averages a 14% improvement in performance, which is really, really, really high. Like that's the difference between being top performer in the industry and out of business. And so this is, this is more than doing A-B testing online, which means that you know, 10 years when everybody has to do this, if you've integrated this into your culture, and so then you can do maybe not 100, but maybe 20 or 30 tests concurrently, you'll be moving so much faster than your competitors that they won't actually be able to catch up. And I think, and that's why, you know, at least we say that it's important to do this sort of thing now because you won't be able to do too many things. You can typically focus on one thing at first, right? And we have three things people that we focus on. One is diversity and inclusion, uh, one is workload assessments, how much people working, one is collaboration risk, right? And people a lot of times say, oh, we want to do a whole bunch of things. We say, you actually have to focus on one at first. And then you can do two, then you can do three. But then once you build up, again, if in 10 years, your competitor just installs this, it doesn't really matter. Like, you get something out of it. But they won't be able to be. So, well, so Thank you so very much. Really interesting and dynamic conversation.